my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. you know, show that we're in this connected world, we really are connected and um, don't let them feel like they're they're being subjected to this brutal violence on their own in one corner and that nobody else cares. There Are No Girls on the Internet is a production of iHeartRadio and Unbossed Creative. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is There Are No Girls on the Internet. On September 16th, Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman, was killed in custody while visiting Tehran. She was stopped by what's known as the Morality Police, or a roving group of people in Iran who police how people, mostly women, present themselves, policing everything from how headscarves are worn, their clothing, or even their makeup. Masa's death in custody sparked anger, protests, and the largest uprising in Iran since 2009, and it's being led by women. My name is Negar Mortazavi. I am an Iranian-American journalist and political commentator and host of the Iran podcast, and I'm based in Washington, D.C. Negar has had an incredibly storied and accomplished career. She studied international development and worked at the U.N., 
But in 2009, after incumbent president Ahmadinejad declared victory in the 2009 presidential election, protests broke out in support of the opposition candidates, Mousavi and Karobi, sparking what's often called the Green Movement. The wave of protests was the largest since the Iranian Revolution in the late 70s, and it changed the entire course of Nagar's career and her life. So yeah, it was one of those moments. Sometimes I hear about civil rights activists saying that the civil rights movement sort of changed the course of their lives. It was one of those things that changed their careers, family, everything, personal and professional. And I think the Green Movement was also a moment that, just like the 1979 revolution before I was born, the 2009 Green Movement was also a turning point that changed the course of professional and personal lives of a lot of Iranians. A lot of journalists had to escape the country. There was a mass exodus of journalists and political activists after the uh, government crackdown of protesters. And also some of us who worked abroad in the diaspora were forced into exile. So on a professional level, also it changed my life. I haven't been able to return, travel back to my homeland since 2009. I've been living in exile. And um, professionally, it also sort of pulled me into this media world. So you've lived in Iran and you've had to deal with the morality police or the guidance police personally. What was that like for you? Well, as a journalist and analyst, you know, you tend to look at things from a bird's eye view or try to report staying outside of the scene. But in this case, it's just inevitable because I was also an average citizen, a young woman living in Iran until I was about 20. Uh, 20 years ago, now you have my age, um, when I moved to the U.S. <laughs> so I, yes, I dealt with the morality police. I was never arrested by the morality police. I was one of the lucky ones. But uh, it doesn't matter if you're arrested or not. You live with this constant fear. So the morality police, actually, the literal uh, term for it is Gashte Ershad, which is the guidance patrol. So they're supposed to patrol. You don't know where they are exactly. They patrol, and any moment you can encounter them in the public spaces. So there's this constant fear. Sometimes even women uh, walking down the street telling each other, be like, oh, don't go to that crossroads. There's a, there's a Gashte or this patrol uh, standing there harassing women. Essentially, it's a form of public harassment over the years. And um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's humiliating for someone to be telling you how to dress and in, in a very subjective way, because it's not like a very clear code over the years in different areas of the country, different local cultures, women dress very differently. So it's very, it's become very subjective based on what that specific agent at the moment deems very humiliating, very intrusive, and also um, just this fear that women constantly have. And it's not only on the way they dress, it's just it's this way of life that's being imposed. But the most visible aspect of it is the mandatory hijab. Yes, I've heard that it can be clothing, makeup, um, these incredibly subjective things. And when I think about what's triggered the protests happening in Iran right now, um, the young woman, Masha Amini, her death, uh, or some might say her murder, um, you know, really tapping into a kind of anger that I think we're really seeing explode now. Can, can you tell us a bit about what's been triggering these protests? So the initial spark for the protest was the 
death in custody, regardless of what the exact circumstance of the moment of God, because the state is disputing the family's narrative. The family is saying she was a healthy 22-year-old with no underlying conditions and that she was subjected to violence under arrest. The state is saying, no, she had this uh, heart attack and we didn't commit any violence, regardless of the exact details. And I'm not a medical expert, but... um, she died in custody. She, the death came in police custody. It was their responsibility, her well-being, her life. And for what? Now you have even some religious Iranians, some hijabi women saying what exactly was wrong with the way she was dressed because we've seen video of her in the detention center. So now the whole country knows, or the whole world knows exactly how she was dressed when she was detained. And this long manteau, as we call it, or this cover-up, she this long scarf, you look like your average small town girl and a lot of women seeing are seeing themselves in her they're saying this could have been me this is how i dressed yesterday so how i'm gonna dress tomorrow a lot of men are seeing their own sisters in her i heard from this one protester in another small town saying my own sisters were visiting tehran on that same day and this is how they dress so would they would they also be killed for the way they're dressing so it's it's how she was dressed. It's it's this whole episode of the death in custody. And essentially, the morality police now is a lethal, uh, violent force that is imposing this subjective dress code on women that you even have some religious scholars speaking up against. There was a grand ayatollah. There was a couple of religious scholars saying, this is not even uh, moral or Islamic. You're not supposed to use violence to impose a, a faith-based value or virtue on people who don't believe in it. And some of these women are not even Muslims. There's a Christian community in Iran. There's a Jewish community. There are visitors. Some of them are non-believers. You know, it's it's forced on everyone. And now you have some scholars even challenging that from a religious viewpoint. You were talking about people being visitors. And that's something about this situation that really sticks with me for some reason. You know, she was just visiting Tehran. She was a guest there. And this is what happened to her. And it makes me think that a lot of the anger and emotion in the situation is because people can really see themselves and their loved ones in her story. Exactly. That's what we're hearing from a lot of protesters in Tehran saying, I am so sorry you were visiting my city and this is how you were treated. This is how you end up a dead body in a hospital. And uh, I also, by visitors, I meant visitors from outside the country. So tourists who are not even Muslim, they're not even Iranian. Um, and they're forced to observe this mandatory hijab. So some religious communities and some religious scholars are challenging, saying, what is the logic in that? I mean, nowhere in religion, this grand Ayatollah was saying, nowhere in, nowhere in the religion is specified that Muslims should use this kind of violence and force to impose their own religious value on others. He called it irrational because he says this is backfiring, this is achieving the exact opposite. You're driving young people away from hijab, from religion, Religion, what you're trying to guide them to accept is, is turning into the opposite of itself. And he also called it illegal. He said nowhere in Iranian law is it specified, despite the mandatory hijab, which is a discriminatory rule, but it's not specified that you're supposed to put this in the hands of the police to enforce it and treat these women. They're treating women essentially like criminals. They arrest them like criminals. They throw them in these police vans. So they're famous for having these vans that they fill up patrolling around the cities. They fill up and then they go to the station to drop them off for further, quote-unquote, guidance or training sessions. What are these training sessions? Can you tell me about those? 
I've never attended one, thankfully, but um, so you go in there. Sometimes you have to sign a paper acknowledging your violation of the dress code and committing that you're not going to commit it again. This violation again, basically it goes on your record like a criminal. Uh, the training teaches you how you're supposed to dress or behave according to the dress code. There are quote unquote experts there who will be talking to you and further quote unquote, guiding you, all of this is just something that is very intrusive, very humiliating. And now you even have communities of religious hijabi women. I saw this campaign on Instagram, hundreds of thousands of um, posts were added that said, I am hijabi and I oppose the morality police. So essentially women who observe it themselves saying, don't do this in my name. Um, I've even heard stories of religious women being stopped by the morality police. So women who observe the hijab in the private of their home go outside with their own interpretation of how they're supposed to cover up and the morality police is it's not acceptable by them so a religious woman who even believes in that when the morality police is not around in the private of their home then gets stopped by them because subjectively it's not the way they want them to be so the the opposition is not just coming from the youth is not just coming from the secular communities it's also coming from religious communities that's coming from multi-generational women and men or women and allies and even some scholars there was a sitting member of parliament uh, who went on national television challenging this what are we doing what is this kind of violence there were a few debates on national television that were unprecedented people going up out there really criticizing both the mandatory hijab and the and the morality police and then there's also very radical slogans on the street that go beyond just the mandatory police and hijab issues targeting the entirety of the system, the political elites, the corruption, the repression, and it's just layers of grievances that have been piling up, and this is on top of that. Let's take a quick break. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, scrolling mindlessly. Well, you get the point. Let Rails to Trails Conservancy unstick you from home. When you get out on a trail and get to walking, you'll feel so good. Trust me. You'll see that being out on the trail is so much more than a day outside. It's good for your soul. Get ideas for getting outside on the trail from Rails to Trails Conservancy, the nation's largest trails, walking, and biking advocacy organization. Visit railstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. 
So in 2024, one of my goals is to finally get serious about my finances. It's been kind of a big emotional thing for me. Thinking about money historically has caused me a lot of anxiety and stress because I have a lot of trauma related to money. And if you can relate, if that sounds like you, check out Fearless Finance. Fearless Finance provides on-demand, comprehensive financial planning by the hour. It's a new way to get financial advice without all the headaches, high fees, and commitments that come with traditional financial advisors. Fearless Finance planners don't sell anything. No used car salesman vibe here. And that means no concerns about being sold something just for the commission that it earns a rep. Their planners meet you where you are on your financial journey. No judgment, whether you're looking to buy a house, optimize your savings, or just want to make sure your finances are okay. They can answer your questions and help you achieve your goals. No question is too small. No problem is too big. Fearless Finance is making financial advice more affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge by the hour. Visit fearlessfinance.com today to get started. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit. And you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use code GIRLS. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Obviously, this death in custody is what triggered these protests, but... Are we also seeing other kinds of frustrations, political frustrations, economic, social, sort of being layered in to to why people are so angry? Definitely. So there is an economic element to this. The Iranian economy is in very bad shape. Iranian uh, youth don't see much prospect for themselves. There's a lot of corruption in the in the political class, a lot of mismanagement of the resources, mismanagement of the whole COVID pandemic. Add to that U.S. sanctions, economic and political isolation from the world that plays a very significant role in the economic situation. There's also political demands. The political space is very, it's closed. It's very repressive. Last year, the president was elected in a very controversial election. Um, his competition, a moderate uh, competitors were disqualified. So a lot of people see him as like a shoo-in candidate in a, uh, who, whose path was cleared to win in the election. So um, it's, it's also political. It's cultural, social. There's a lot of pressure on artists, on filmmakers. Even before Massa's death, uh, filmmakers were arrested. They were pressured. Artists. Um, now we're seeing even athletes, some football players that are speaking up uh, are getting pressured. So it's it's multi-layered for sure. And everyone is on the street with their own grievance, but also this collective uh, sense of, of multiple layers that people have taken to the street before in previous protests in 2019. I was in mostly sparked by an economic issue, a hike in fuel prices. In 2009, the spark was a political issue, the contested presidential election. But um, when it's met with a crime, with a violent crackdown without the actual demand being addressed. So people may go back home, uh, but then they next time they come out uh, bringing all of those grievances and demands with them. 
What are some ways that the protests that we're seeing today, how are they different than some of the ones that we saw in 2019 and 2021? Well, in 2019, the spark was an economic issue. It was a sudden hike in fuel prices. So you saw a lot of working class Iranians um, whose life costs suddenly dramatically changed just because of this fuel price um, take to the streets. And uh, a lot of young men were centered in those protests, also from the number of um, deaths, people who were killed in the protests and the arrests. Um, there was more leaning to that. The middle class also participated. It was in um, uh, cities and um, towns, but the demographics was a little bit more leaning towards that issue. This time around, it's the spark is a women's rights issue. So you have a lot of women, young women, really leading these protests or taking the, um, f- being on the front line, the symbolic images of them burning their scarf, essentially, or cutting their hair, which is a sign of grief. It's also a sign of defiance and resistance. Um, so the visibility of women is very strong. You see a lot of middle class um, Iranians joining in the protests. It's still difficult because the, there's internet disruption. There isn't uh, easy access to the media to cover these protests. So it's hard to gauge and do a fair comparison to something that's happened in the past. And we saw the images later. But this time around, I think one of the most visible differences or just one of the most visible aspects we see is that a lot of young women are uh, at the forefront of this and very um, understandably it's a women's rights issue and uh, it's the death of a young woman. As we know protesting in Iran is is dangerous it's deadly and you know these young women are taking to the streets and by doing so they're truly risking their lives by showing up and the images and videos that we're seeing you know women shaving their heads, not just taking off their scarves, but burning them. I feel like there's such a, a clear, visual, visceral defiance in the way they're showing up to the streets. It certainly is, yes. And as you said, it's incredible bravery and courage that we're seeing from this young generation risking their lives, essentially. We've seen the number of uh, deaths, dozens have been uh, killed, the number of arrests. There's a lot of women, human rights activists are saying there's a lot of women among the dead. Um, those who were killed, there's a high percentage of women among the arrests, among the journalists who were arrested, a prominent uh, female journalist, Niloufar Hamedi, who went to the hospital and covered the story, was arrested alongside others. Um, so yes, it's, it's incredible courage and bravery and also very raw anger. Women have been fighting this morality police and mandatory hijab for 40 years. They had been pushing back individually. And now there's this collective um, pushback that we're seeing in the form of these protests. More after a quick break. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, scrolling mindlessly. Well, you get the point. Let Rails to Trails Conservancy unstick you from home. When you get out on a trail and get to walking, you'll feel so good. Trust me. You'll see that being out on the trail is so much more than a day outside. It's good for your soul. Get ideas for getting outside on the trail from Rails to Trails Conservancy, the nation's largest trails, walking, and biking advocacy organization. 
visit railstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails. So in 2024, one of my goals is to finally get serious about my finances. It's been kind of a big emotional thing for me. Thinking about money historically has caused me a lot of anxiety and stress because I have a lot of trauma related to money. And if you can relate, if that sounds like you, check out Fearless Finance. Fearless Finance provides on-demand, comprehensive financial planning by the hour. It's a new way to get financial advice without all the headaches, high fees, and commitments that come with traditional financial advisors. Fearless Finance planners don't sell anything. No used car salesman vibe here. And that means no concerns about being sold something just for the commission that it earns a rep. Their planners meet you where you are on your financial journey. No judgment, whether you're looking to buy a house, optimize your savings, or just want to make sure your finances are okay. They can answer your questions and help you achieve your goals. No question is too small. No problem is too big. Fearless Finance is making financial advice more affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge by the hour. Visit fearlessfinance.com today to get started. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit. And you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use code GIRLS. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get right back into it. When you think about the role that technology, the internet, and other telecommunication services plays in protests, it's easy to see the ways that this is a clear tech issue. Earlier this year, the Iranian government announced a plan to use facial recognition technology on public transportation and in other public places to identify women who don't comply with very strict laws around dress and wearing headscarves. And... As the protests raged, outages of internet and cellular services created a barrier for women to spread their message and connect with each other. Many took to social media platforms like TikTok and asked anyone with a platform to share their messages and amplify their voices because they couldn't reliably do so without consistent internet. And this is not the first time that internet disruptions were used as a tactic to silence protest in Iran. Why is that been a tactic that the state has used during times of protest? 
So the state wants to minimize coverage or evidence of violence committed by security forces, and they deny it. They say it's the protesters who are being violent, it's being fomented by our foreign enemies, and uh, we, we have no problem with peaceful protests. So according to the Iranian law, the constitution, peaceful protests without arms should be allowed in the country. But that's not the case. Uh, there was even a conservative group, not uh, among more of the conservative camp or the hardline camp who requested permission for a protest uh, against the mandatory police, and it was denied. Um, so the internet disruption and the limitations on media as far as coverage of the protests, um, one of them is to discourage or limit protesters from recruiting more protests or organizing more protests. The other is to limit protesters from communicating with each other. So when they're out in the protests, they won't be able to find each other. Another is to prevent them from disseminating the information to the larger community. So if you live in a city, you find that there's a protest, you can go join it. If you don't, then you can't. And also from uh, prevents them from sending images, videos, photos, and essentially evidence um, out outside of the country to the global media, to human rights organizations. All of these are ways that go hand in hand with the suppression and the crackdown. We saw it in 2019, a, a near shutdown, a total blackout of internet access, social media access. And uh, it took a while for us to understand what exactly was going on and to see it visually um, weeks later when uh, citizens and eyewitnesses were able to send these images out. I, I report on social media a lot, and it was really TikTok where I saw so many women in Iran saying, you know, our internet services have been disrupted, so please help us share this message, boost this message, if you can repost this message. And I thought it was really interesting and, and quite savvy that that was the clear ask that these women had. They were bringing it to social media, asking people to boost that message and really help amplify it because they couldn't rely on having reliable internet access or media coverage. Exactly. So Iranian protesters have actually been, Iranian citizens, the young generation, have been very savvy in using internet and social media because they have to rely on these alternative sources, because there isn't much free and independent media and um, access in the country. So a lot of times, even foreign outlets rely on these citizen journalists on everyday um, eyewitness videos with mobile phones to document and to report on these issues and cover them. And uh, we saw it in 2009. Back then, Facebook was really big, uh, and to some extent, Twitter, but mostly Facebook. In 2019, we also saw there's another messaging app that's very popular in Iran, Telegram, that was very big. And then this time around, I think TikTok also talks to the generation that's really protesting. It's a lot of younger Iranians. And another thing I noticed is a lot of influencers on these social media who are not necessarily Iranian, but they're being... Um, contacted and asked or urged by the Iranian followers to speak up. And I saw uh, some influencers who are not even political, like on cooking or lifestyle that are speaking up and bringing light to this issue and showing solidarity. And it's, it's all going back to the savviness of the population. It's also a very young population Iran. 70% of the country is under the age of 40. And um, so it's just a very young and connected and savvy population, despite all the limits that the government is putting on. Wow, that's really something to have such a young citizenry. I think it speaks to this idea of 
feeling like you have the right to control your future and the right to demand something better for how your life can be and how you'll be treated from your government. And even if the government erects all of these barriers, young women are still being savvy enough to go around those barriers to make their voices heard. It is, it is. And it's not just women, it's men also, but it's so much more severe for women, the discrimination in family law, in occupation, even in universities, um, in child custody, in um, the glass ceiling that uh, is above their head, in life, in their career, in their personal life. And, and women have to just strive and, and put so much more effort and work compared to their male counterparts um, to, to be successful. So it's very frustrating and uh, it's very understandable that there's just so many multiple layers of anger that uh, we're seeing outpouring on the streets, not just by women, but also their men and allies. Yeah, I mean, something that you that you talked about earlier is this idea of treating women like criminals just for being, I mean, not even, I was going to say just for being outside of their home, but not even that, right? And so I, I do think there's something about how difficult that makes it to participate in public life as a woman or a girl. If you, if you, if, if you can be treated this way just for existing, just for showing up, it's an incredible barrier just for being able to, just to, be, to live a life. Indeed, yes, it is. A lot of women are essentially saying, in many cases, we feel like second-class citizens. The discrimination is just so suffocating. Um, there's also a vibrant movement. Women have been pushing back, demanding their rights, and they've made a lot of successes. And it's not just in recent years. It's been a century, a hundred years of their striving from the constitutional revolution through the 79 revolution through the reform days and until today that women have been pushing they've made some successes um but there's also this pull and push there's a pushback from not just the state but also the foundations of patriarchy this is not all necessarily rooted in religion there's also that foundation of patriarchy you sometimes even see it among secular uh, Iranians and the traditions, and then combine it with this uh, religious layer in the Islamic Republic. Obviously, it takes um, a lot of its uh, foundations in religion. So it's it's something that women have been pushing back, and globally, it's not just the women in Iran or in the Middle East, um, but it's uh, something that I'm just in awe of the bravery and the courage of these young women in Iran. I'm so glad that you're mentioning how all of this is global. I feel like we're seeing women-led protests and movements all over the world, in the Middle East, in the United States, in the Global South. And I wonder, how can we make sure that we're really being in solidarity with each other and learning from each other and supporting each other in what we know is this global movement led by fed-up angry women? How can we keep these conversations rooted in global solidarity? Well, yes, it's very important to not lose sight of the fact that this is a global and historical fight. It's happening in different shapes of, and forms across the world in each community. Different issues uh, are in the spotlight. Of course, we don't want to minimize the kind of violence and the, the severity of some of these issues that Iranian women are dealing with or the fact that Masa Amini died because of the way she was dressed, because of the violence of the morality police. But in, in different, on different levels and different shapes and forms, women are dealing with this issue across the world. Here in the U.S., it's reproductive rights that's taking center stage these days. 
and uh, across the, the global south, the global north, different um, issues for minorities, for the majority of women, um, in this intersectionality of all of these issues that we're talking. So I think it's important, and Iranian women are also receiving a lot of messages of solidarity and sisterhood from some of their neighboring countries. I've seen Turkish women joining. I've seen messages from Arab women in solidarity, and also from not the region, from, from the global um, collection of women, activists, artists, celebrities, actors, athletes it's just been an outpouring of support and solidarity and i think that's something that um gives a lot of hope and encouragement to them absolutely if for folks who are listening what can people do to help support are there causes people should be looking to donate to uh, how can folks get involved well, I would say listen to a lot of the voices from inside Iran. It's a grassroots movement. It's an indigenous movement. And a lot of women inside the country are risking their lives, as we spoke, um, pushing for this issue. Try to echo their voices, uh, share information about uh, these issues, show solidarity, use the hashtags, or as Iranian women are saying, say her name, Masa Amini. That's been one of the slogans. One of the other slogans was woman, life, freedom. It's, I think, such a progressive and forward-looking and, and all-encompassing slogan, woman, life, freedom, zan, zendegi, azadi. Um, just, you know, repeat these chants, use the hashtags, share the stories, show solidarity. If you have Iranian friends, talk to them, see if they need support, hear the stories and um, just, you know, show that we're in this connected world. We really are connected and um, don't let them feel like they're they're being subjected to this brutal violence on their own in one corner and that nobody else cares. You know, you're doing such an incredible job of curating these conversations about life in Iran and, and the cultural and political aspects of the, of the country. Uh, where can folks, can you tell us about the podcast and how folks can listen to it? Sure. So the Iran podcast started uh, over two years ago as a pandemic podcast. It's a weekly interview style conversation on Iranian politics, society, culture. We talk about these issues, women's rights, human rights. Uh, and we try to go beyond just your average um, five-minute mainstream media segment, which mostly is about the nuclear program and the nuclear issue, and try to bring in feature experts that uh, know so much about their field, but also you don't necessarily see them uh, as the your everyday commentator on mainstream media. Um, and yes, yeah, so the podcast is available on major platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, CastBox, I think around 10 or 12 platforms. Um, it's also available on, on anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast. That's the main uh, link where they can go and see all the platforms that's available or just search the Iran podcast on their favorite podcast app. I'm also very active on Twitter at Negar Mortazavi where I share all of my interviews, a lot of the information, and also podcast episodes. So, um, And just also great outlets that are uh, covering the news in Persian and also in English, um, and some organizations and NGOs and activists that are trying to bring this issue and keep the reporting alive in a global stage. 
I am in complete awe of the bravery of these women risking their lives to fight for change in Iran. And Iranian women deserve to be heard. So let's keep sharing their stories and amplifying their voices. Because solidarity is global and their voices are powerful. If you're looking for ways to support the show, check out our merch store at tangodi.com store. Got a story about an interesting thing in tech or just want to say hi? You can reach us at hello at tangodi.com. You can also find transcripts for today's episode at tangodi.com. There Are No Girls on the Internet was created by me, Bridget Todd. It's a production of iHeartRadio and Unbossed Creative. Edited by Joey Pat. Jonathan Strickland is our executive producer. Tari Harrison is our producer and sound engineer. Michael Amato is our contributing producer. I'm your host, Bridget Todd. If you want to help us grow, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.